Hello and welcome to the new psychology of depression, a series of programmes with me, Dr Danny Penman, and Professor Mark Williams of Oxford University. In the previous episodes, we looked at depression and the treatments available. In this episode, we're going to look at why depression tends to return. Mark, can you summarise where we are with uh, treatments for depression today? Okay, so in the previous uh, episodes, we looked at depression, what it is, as you say, and we noticed that uh, there is acute depression, but it tends to come back. And so now people distinguish between the episode itself of depression and then response to any treatment. And if that response is sort of held up for a few weeks, maybe eight weeks of being symptom free or only having very mild symptoms, you call that a remission. And then if that goes on for a few months, you call it a full recovery. And we've seen that acute treatments like antidepressant medication uh, seems to treat successfully about 60% of people. Same is true of cognitive therapy as well, about 60% respond really well. Uh, but as we've seen, the problem is that still most people either don't seek treatment or they don't get treatment, or if they get antidepressants, they stop taking them. So relapse is a huge problem. One of the problems with relapse is it wouldn't matter if people, say, got depressed very late in life where relapse, there wasn't much time for them to relapse. But as we've seen, one of the big changes over the last 50 years is that onset is getting earlier and earlier. And therefore, there's a whole lifetime ahead of people when they've been depressed for the first time where they may be at risk of getting depressed again. So this relapse, it, it's not anything to do with uh, withdrawal symptoms. This is just people returning to their underlying nature, as it were? There is some evidence that some forms of depression are genetic. At least they have a genetic, high genetic loading in them. Of course, when you know that something's genetic, it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do about it. You can intervene. Uh, people might have a, a genetic condition that means they can't eat certain stuff, for example. So they stay away from that stuff and it's fine. So genetics doesn't mean there's nothing can be done. So even though the most genetically highly loaded depressions may start early, they may be most recurrent, it still doesn't mean that we can't intervene. But most depression is not genetic, is it? It's, it's mostly a psychosocial problem? It's not possible to distinguish what's genetic and what's a psychosocial problem in the sense they interact very closely. So, for example, the recent evidence on this serotonin transporter gene that might affect the ability to develop and make sufficient um, serotonin in the brain, this neurotransmitter which you know is very important, that, that genetic problem is then brought into play only if people have a chronic stress or big life events. So you can have, if you have a life free of big events, then it won't affect you. However, uh, if you don't have that genetic loading, you can have quite big events and still uh, seem to be resilient to them. So it's a very complex interplay. It's not possible to say, yes, this, it's either genetic or it's, uh, it's nurture. For somebody who has just been successfully treated for depression, what can you do to reduce the risk of relapse? One of the important things to note is that once people have recovered, they can recover for quite a while. And also, as we said in the last episode, people can continue to take their antidepressants. So that's probably the most common way in which a physician would advise somebody to reduce the risk of future relapse, is to continue to take the antidepressant medication. But as we saw there, some people don't want to take the medication. For example, if a woman wants to get pregnant, she may be advised not to 
to take antidepressants. If she wants to breastfeed, she may not want to be taking antidepressants. And many people either naturally stop when they feel better, because how many of us continue our treatments after we feel better? We may just forget to take the pills, for example. And then often physicians don't tell us what to do when we've actually just forgotten to take the pills. If we don't find it, our symptoms coming back immediately, then the tendency is to keep them in the cupboard or keep them in the bag for a rainy day. The trouble is antidepressants don't work like that. So the net effect is that the long-term effects that might be delivered by antidepressants don't, aren't actually delivered. Now, there's another thing that's actually just beginning to emerge, and it's really quite serious if it's replicated, but one study has begun to show that if you take antidepressants for more than a year, then their effects may begin to wear off. It's too early to say if that's going to be a trend, but I think the fact that people have begun to even suggest it is important. And of course our attention then turns to the big alternative, which is can we find a psychological approach which has this same effect to reduce the long-term risk. Can you really change the underlying thinking processes that somebody may have had for 20, 30, 40 years and you know, in a course of three months of psychotherapy, can you really change their underlying thought processes? What's an extraordinary discovery is that A, you can, in at least 60% of cases, that it has an effect and that's what cognitive therapy attempts to do. Um, and what is more, that cognitive therapy reduces the risk of depression coming back. The problem is, we don't know how it works. And it looked as if, for a long time, as if cognitive therapy was having its main effect by uh, changing the, what you said to yourself. So instead of saying, I'm a failure, when you recognise that thought, you would say, ah, now then, what's the evidence that thought is really true? Is that the, just the depression speaking? In fact, when we were uh, studying cognitive therapy in the early days, we thought we knew exactly why people continued to be at risk. It was down to long-term beliefs, often picked up in childhood and adolescence, beliefs like, I should be happy all the time, or beliefs like, to admit any weakness is a shameful thing to do, or I can't be happy unless everybody loves me. Now, these in themselves are not depressing, but when you get certain circumstances, so for example, if you think that one failure means you're failure as a person, then you're perfectly okay until you start failing. But then you conclude, I'm a failure as a person. And in addition to having to do with your recent failure, which is bad enough, you now have to deal with something else, which is feeling a failure as a person. Or for example, you may think, I should be happy all the time. Now that's not by itself a depressing thing to think, but what happens if you feel sad? Now, not only do you have to deal with your sadness in as skillful a way as possible, but you now have to deal with something else, which is you should be happy. You've just, you, you now feel guilty as well as sad because you've just violated one of your sort of fundamental attitudes and beliefs in the way you work in the world. So it looked as if these, what they call them dysfunctional attitudes, these long-term core beliefs. It looks as if you've got to treat those in therapy and if you, if you go away from therapy with these still, as it were, there, present, then you're at risk for relapse. That is what cognitive therapy believed. That's why we measured these things in people when they're depressed and we found lots of evidence, we and many teams around the world found there's lots of evidence that people when they're depressed they have lots of these dysfunctional attitudes, core beliefs like I should be happy all the time. 
we thought we had it beaten, i.e. we thought we knew why exactly people relapsed. If you dealt with them in therapy, people wouldn't relapse. If you didn't deal with them in therapy, people would relapse. And then we had a great surprise. Study after study began to show something which prevented that theory from being true. They found that when you recovered, even with antidepressants, these core dysfunctional attitudes also went back to normal. In other words, what we thought was a major causal factor in you know, creating the conditions for relapse, it turns out that antidepressants affect the same process. So this was a puzzle because we knew that cognitive therapy predicted uh, a lower risk in the long term over a year or two and that antidepressants didn't. You still relapsed after antidepressants if you came off them. So what was going on? And that's where the experiment started to have to examine what was the underlying psychological factors that kept you at risk. And what were they? Was this the, uh, the famous diving experiments? Yeah, well, you mentioned the diving experiments. It, it wasn't so much the diving experiments that told us about depression risk, but it all comes back to what's called context effects in learning and memory. That's where the diving comes in. So we've known for a long while that if you learn something in one set of conditions, even if you forget them when you're outside those conditions, you tend to remember them better when you come back. So, for example, people might find that if they've learned maths in the maths room at school, then if they do a maths test in the French room, where they learn French, then they don't do so well, put them back in the maths room, and all the cues that were around when you learned maths, even if you've taken the symbols and formulae off the walls, people do better. Or you might know if you, you, know, if you think of something you need upstairs, to another room in the house, you go upstairs, when you get there you can't think what you've come for. You go back to the place where you first thought of it and suddenly it comes back to your mind. So changing context can be quite a powerful effect on, on memory. And that's where the diving experiments come in. Um, deep sea divers, when the North Sea was being opened up for oil exploration, they found they were forgetting stuff when they went down under the water. They brought in some psychologists to advise them on what they could do. And the psychologists realised, as my colleagues Alan Badley and Duncan Godden, uh, doing this work in the 1970s and 80s, they realised that this wasn't just that when you were underwater it was very dark and murky and you tended to forget anything. It's what you'd learnt on the beach you forget when you're underwater. But if you learn stuff, stuff underwater, you forget it when you come on the beach. It was another example, once again, of context-dependent learning. So what you learn in one context, you may forget, but when you go back into the context, it comes back. So is this because the brain is somehow learning to use the environment as a store of information? Precisely. That actually the brain has an amazing way of meshing with your environment. That you don't need to store everything in the brain. You know, the world is a better store of information and knowledge than your brain is. And therefore, when you go into certain contexts, I mean, if you know, you know, if you go back to a childhood place where you grew up, you might not remember much about it, but when you're walking down the street in that childhood place, all sorts of memories come flooding back. In one sense, they are in a rudimentary form encoded in the brain, but they need that extra activation of the outside context. And the interesting thing about that is this, that about 20, 30 years ago, psychologists discovered that your mood could act just like a context. In other words, when you get depressed, anything that you think, feel, uh, remember, uh, when you're in that state, when you're out of depression, it, you know, it, it may not bother you at all. But just another episode of sad mood 
can bring with it all those memories, thoughts, interpretations you had when you were last depressed. Can you give us um, some interesting experiments along these lines? Because I understand that this is a hot area of research. Yeah, for the last 20, 30 years, in fact, it's, it's developed very rapidly. But once people started to realise that mood could act as a context, people started to say, well, how could we actually see that in the laboratory? And it, uh, this was a, a big development when people started to say, well, let's invite people to come into the lab um, and to experience depression for 10 minutes in a fairly small way. And the way to do that is, there's a number of ways to do it, obviously thinking sad memories or reading sad things on a bit of paper, but you can actually do an experiment in which you do all of that, but you also play sad music. And we tend to use Prokofiev, uh, Russia under the Mongolian yoke, played at half speed. And when you do that, what you find is very slow, it's very dirgy, together with sad memories and sad things written on paper, after 10 minutes people feel quite low. I mean, not devastatingly low, but quite low. And what you can do is you invite people into the lab, some of whom have never been depressed in the past, and some of whom have been depressed, but they're now completely recovered. So at the start of the experiment, you can't tell who's been depressed and who's not. And then you give them a scale to measure their level of dysfunctional attitudes. So things like, I should be happy all the time, it's shameful to display your weaknesses, you know, um, uh, I have to f have succeeded everything or I'm a complete failure. And at the start of the experiment, they don't score very high on that because they're feeling good. Now, you give them 10 minutes of Prokofiev and afterwards the people who've never been depressed hardly change at all. But the people who've been depressed in the past, suddenly all these patterns of thinking all turn up again. And what's most striking, we've done this work as well with people who've been not only depressed in the past, but suicidal in the past. That extends it even further because what we discover then is not only do people become dysfunctional, uh, as in normal experiments on depression, but they start to get a tunnel vision about ways of solving their problems, thus revealing suicide as the only option. It's the sort of sense in which other options disappear, and that happens very rapidly over just eight or ten minutes of this, uh, of this mood. And at the end of the experiment, you talk people through that, they recover, and actually at the end of these experiments, people are really interested. They've learned something important about themselves, which is that their mood creates uh, if it isn't bad enough, the mood can create more devastating consequences by pulling back, by dragging up all these old regrets, arguments, failures and disappointments from the past. And that if it's not enough to deal with your mood now, to deal with all these things from the past as well, and it always turns up as if it's relevant now. You don't think, ah, I used to believe I was a failure. You actually believe now that you're a complete failure and this just proves it. And that's what makes it have such a huge impact. Does this mean we're at the mercy of the environment in a way? Well, we are unless we actually wake up to what's happening. And the remarkable thing is that what cognitive therapy actually was doing, all the time that we thought it was changing people's minds uh, in the sense of changing their beliefs and the content of their belief, it's much more likely that what it was doing is changing people's relationship to their own thoughts. That people were actually learning 
when they wrote down their thoughts, not to give themselves clever arguments about actually, am I a failure? No, I'm not a failure. What's the evidence? But in collecting the evidence, they were beginning to see their thoughts as just mental events, like clouds in the sky. And this new relationship that they had, I mean, the technical word for it is metacognitive awareness. They were cultivating a way of gaining perspective on the fact that these the thoughts were, as it were, not telling the truth about themselves. And because we mostly thoughts seem to tell the truth, you tend to believe them all, even the ones that say you're useless, and that actually that's depression speaking very often. This mood reactivity, does it actually predict depression? That's the astonishing thing, that Zindel Siegel, my colleague working with uh, myself and John Teasdale um, to develop the mindfulness programme, had actually been conducting experiments during the 1990s to to look at the impact of this reactivity using mood induction like Prokofiev. And what he found, he first of all took people going through the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto, and some of the sample were getting cognitive therapy, some of the sample were getting um, antidepressants. And at the end of that treatment, they were all in remission, they all looked pretty good, they weren't depressed anymore, but now he gave them this dysfunctional attitude scale before and after a mood challenge. And he found that those who'd had the antidepressants looked good, their scores were low, until he gave them Prokofiev. And then, as the sad mood began to take hold, so their associated thought patterns begin to wind themselves up. But in the people who'd had cognitive therapy, as their mood began to go, and their mood, you know, it, it went down like anybody else's, but they didn't change. In fact, in some, their dysfunctional attitudes became more functional rather than more dysfunctional. And then, when he looked over the next few months and years, whichever group they were in, those who had responded badly to his mood induction were the people who relapsed. What came next was the understanding that what was being affected by this mood was not just a return of certain memories. I mean, I can give you an example of this. If, if uh, let's imagine you were out for a walk on a sunny day, like it's a sunny Sunday morning, you're going for a walk around a lake, um, and there's not very many people around there, maybe a couple of families feeding the ducks or whatever. And it's a sunny day, so it's the sort of day where by yourself you feel, um, you'd normally feel happy, you'd normally feel calm and at peace. But for some reason this morning, you're feeling a bit low, your mood's a bit low. Now, if you imagine how low you are feeling right now in this imaginary scenario we're building, and then start asking yourself some questions. Why do I feel so low? I wish that I felt happier than I do right now. What's going to happen if this mood persists? What's it say about me that I could get this depressed on a sunny Sunday morning like this? Why? What's it say about me? Um, where is it going to end? Now, how do you feel? Most people say, I feel even worse. That's really interesting because there's nothing in those questions inherently which are depressing. But what's happened is a certain mode of mind has worked up. I mean, basically, all those questions are there to try to help solve the problem of your mood. But because they are, as it were, volunteering to help, you tend to keep on asking them. But most people find that their mood begins to go down rather than up. It's evoked a problem-solving mode of mind which is very language-based. You've started thinking, and often people then the thinking turns into overthinking, or what we call rumination, or brooding. And the question why, often 
you search your memory for why you're feeling like that. And one thing we know about memory, as we've just said, like the context effect, is like diving back into the place where you had lots of negative memories and events in the past. So the question why starts bringing up really negative things from the past. Your mood begins to deteriorate any further. And then you start trying harder to think, why am I depressed and where is this going to end and so on. All in the service of making yourself feel better, but it's tragically backfiring. And two things have happened. Two major processes have been brought online. Rumination, or brooding, and avoidance. It's all in the service of trying to avoid going back into the depression, into the slough of despond again. I mean, you, you, you say they're questions, but, well, they're almost accusations. People are accusing themselves. I mean, that's the way it seems to me. Absolutely. And they're often buried in questions. So if you ask, what's wrong with me? That seems like a question. But if you notice the structure of the question, it's already assuming there's something wrong with you. And if only you could find out what, then it would be better. Or if you say, you know, um, if, if, what's going to happen if this doesn't end? Guess what? It's assumed that it might not end. So you've just frightened yourself in the very asking of the question. Do people who become repeatedly depressed, are they more diligent than the rest of us, for example? They're more determined, they're more perfectionist? That is often the case. It's not so much, I mean, that can happen. It's not, however, just perfectionist in the sense, um, it's reaction to your own sad moods by wanting things instantly to be better. It's often an intolerance of sadness. You want to solve the problem and you want to solve the problem now. You can understand why that should be, especially if you've been depressed many times in the past. You really, really don't want to go there again. And yet, this pushing away, this avoidance, often is a problem. I mean, there's a certain proposition in psychology, what we resist persists. And lots of experiments which are often called the white bear experiments. And they're experiments that go a bit like this. Um, I want you to think about anything for the next minute, but do not think of a white bear. Or I want you to think of anything for the next minute, but do not think of a pink elephant. And guess what? People either can't get pink elephants or white bears out of their head for that minute, or when they stop trying to suppress them, they come back with greater force. Now, if it was only white bears and pink elephants, that'd be one thing. But uh, my colleague Tim Dalgleish in Cambridge and Denny Yeend working in Cambridge have done this experiment with negative memories, asking people to describe the negative events from the past, selecting one, and then saying, just, just make sure that doesn't come into your head for the next uh, little while, next minute or so. And people may be able to do that quite well. But afterwards, it bounces back. And what's even more significant, when they do another memory test over the next few minutes, looking at negative and positive memories from the past, those who have tried to suppress one negative memory, just that one, they find they're faster to retrieve other negative memories in their past. So the effect of trying to suppress one negative memory has actually made the other ones sort of grow much more forcefully. So it's a very a uh, good example of this, what we resist persists. And um, so you have two problems here. Rumination can get you entangled in these questions that can drive your mood down and down. Why me? Why me? Why me? Or why am I so depressed? And avoidance or trying to stop and suppress your memories can actually make other memories, if not that one, actually come back with greater force. This is very significant because what it suggests is this, that when people are beginning to get depressed again, it's not just certain memories and attitudes and interpretations. It's not just the content of their mind, as we used to think in cognitive therapy. 
but it's the whole mode of mind that comes up. This mode of mind that actually begins to try to solve the problem for you actually turns out to be not a very good problem solver in this particular case. And I think there are a number of reasons why that is. So in order to understand that, we have to understand why is this mode of mind so persistent? The lake example, for example, when you walk around the lake and you feel all this sort of attempt to try to avoid, I don't want to get depressed again, and to ask yourself questions. I mean, for one thing, it comes on automatically. That's the first thing about this mode of mind. It's often automatic. It's very preoccupying. It mainly uses verbal, ruminative thinking. Uh, it's often very overgeneral. Any memories that come back to you, often things like, I always did this, or nobody always did, you know, uh, ever did that for me. And this overthinking, it's designed to do something to change the current state. It's what we call discrepancy-based processing. That is, it focuses on the gap or the discrepancy between your current state and your desired state. So the whole idea of this mode of mind is it trying to close a gap. This thinking that comes online to try to close the gap tries to bring up from the past and bring up from the possible futures evidence that can help you to close that gap. It tends to be there in the service of avoiding this place you don't want to go again. These thoughts that come up are taken as real, because mostly thoughts are real and they do tell you the truth. Um, and it depletes your energies. You just go for it. It seems to me the most important thing you can do to try to sort yourself out. So you stop nourishing yourself, you stop taking breaks, and you just focus on this and you deplete yourself and exhaust yourself. It's all quite logical then. I mean, if you approach it from an entirely logical perspective, this is how you would deal with this problem. Exactly, Danny. That really gets the nub of the problem. This mode of mind comes up not because it's usually unhelpful, but just the opposite. This mode of mind is usually the most helpful thing you can do. I mean, imagine a simple example like uh, getting from here to the other side of Oxford. Okay, here we are sitting in Headington in the Warnford Hospital in the Oxford Mindfulness Centre. And let's say you wanted to go to Summertown on the other side of Oxford. Now, you've got to know where you are now, and you've got to know what your destination is. And you get in your car or on your bike, and you, you start out. What if you start actually, you turn off the wrong road? It's perfectly legitimate then to, to think, oh, where did I go wrong? And retrace your steps. Where did I go wrong is a very legitimate question there because you are thinking, how can I get back on track? But if you're thinking about your life and you say, where did I go wrong? It suddenly feels a lot more important and a lot more pernicious and a lot more unanswerable. But that's not the mode of mind's fault. It's doing the best that it can. So you want to have a problem-solving mode of mind that gets you from here to be very smoothly, automatically, and it's got to close the gap between where you are on your bike or in your car and where you want to be. When you get to your destination, you know, the mode of mind can close down. It's done the job it has to do. But notice this. The whole point of external problem-solving, like getting from you know, here to the other side of town, if you stop and ask yourself, how far have I got to go? How far am I from my destination? That itself, asking that question, doesn't affect how far you have to go. You might get off your bike, you look at a map, and you are where you are. Asking the question doesn't affect anything. But think about when you're feeling low walking around that lake. You start the same problem-solving mode. Where am I now? Depressed. Where would I like to be? Happy. Ah, there's the gap. 
there's the gap between where you are now and where you'd like to be. As soon as you notice you're not as happy as you wish you were, what happens? You become sadder. Now that's very different. What's happened is the very mode that normally solves your problem so elegantly, so automatically, without any thought or, you know, by your leave, as it were, which gets us out of a whole slew of fixes, all of that now starts to backfire because the same mode of mind, actually when you apply it to yourself or your mood, begins to make the gap larger. And the mind usually has been trained only in this problem-solving mode, so it tries again. Okay, so why am I depressed, it says. Okay, I, why, where did I go wrong? And there, that innocuous-sounding question, which is innocuous when you're going from here to North Oxford, turns out to be not so innocuous when you're talking about your mood. And you get yourself entangled more and more, and all of us do this from time to time, we find ourselves entangled more and more in these ever-deepening questions as our mood goes down. And the poor mind is doing the best it can, if you like. It's really trying to help us with this automatic, verbal, gap-focusing, discrepancy-focused, past and future evidence, avoidant, thoughts being taken as real, depleting, and the net result is exhaustion and sadness and depression. Which means there has to be an alternative. That's right. It points towards an interesting alternative because the purpose of, of the research we've been doing over the last 20 years is to try to find something which can help people even between depressions when they're well, because we know there are periods for most people when they're well, to prevent the next episode of depression. When you think about it, depression keeps coming back, but why in the past, you know, from the 1950s onwards until the 1980s, we only had one thing. We either treated it with antidepressants or we treated it with cognitive therapy, but both of them work, but they, you have to wait until people are depressed. They are treatments. They are treatments for the episode of depression. If you had the same house fire in the same place for two or three years running, eventually the fire officer would be called out to say, what's structurally wrong with this house that means it keeps going up in flames? And, uh, so you wouldn't want to just say, well, we'll just call out the fire brigade year after year after year. And the point is with treatments of depression, we want to get beyond calling out the, the, as it were, the treatments year after year after year. Can we find a way? Now this mode of mind is really interesting because it may well be that even when people are well, they can begin to see the evidence of this mode of mind showing up and therefore we can train people to recognize it a long time before they get depressed again which will stand them in good stead for seeing the tipping points and being able to as it were steer out of the skid before they actually get into the, another depression this is mindfulness-based cognitive therapy this is exactly mindfulness-based cognitive therapy it's basically saying that look if your mind is doing the best it can you don't have to criticize yourself for this, you just have to recognize when that mode of mind is turning up and actually backfiring, inadvertently backfiring. It also says that people are vulnerable, and this is the new theory that came out of the last 20 years, that what keeps people vulnerable to depression is that some people are highly sensitive to their sad moods. So that some people, a small amount of sad mood produces a great context effect in which all these content and processes keep coming back. Other people can have a lot of sad mood and somehow they don't have these avoidance, rumination, uh, sad memories coming back. That's the essence of what keeps people vulnerable and that's what we need to tackle 
in our new ways of helping people stay well after depression. It is ironic though that a technique developed two and a half thousand years ago is proving to be so relevant for the modern world. It's extraordinary and I was very sceptical at first and in the next uh, episode I want to uh, go into detail about what mindfulness is and why something developed two and a half thousand years ago when combined with modern science and modern cognitive therapy can actually powerfully reduce the risk uh, of depression coming back. Thank you very much. In this episode, we were looking at the science of why people relapse back into depression. And in the next episode, we'll be looking at a new approach to preventing depression known as mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. For further information about the issues raised in this programme, you can read The Mindful Way Through Depression by Professor Mark Williams and his co-workers. Or you could read our book, Mindfulness, Finding Peace in a Frantic World by Mark Williams and me, Danny Penman, or you could visit our website, franticworld.com. If you'd like to support further research in this area, you could visit oxfordmindfulness.org, that's all one word, and follow the links to the development campaign.